This is Stephen Wishnoff, and you're listening to Inside Oz. Ginger, ginger, broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, the boom, cloud, and landed on his back. Fuck you! I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is that we're all shit. Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. See, I'm a piece of shit. I Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. So glad that you're all back for this episode and thank you everyone for the kind words sent through about the Series 3 opener. That episode went way longer than I anticipated when putting it together and there were bits that I wanted to put in there, like Seth Gilliam's introduction, but like I said, there was a shitload of stuff crammed into that opener that I just felt like it would have become a bit too bloated if I tried to fit anything else in. So over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to try to be able to sort those things out and slot them in nicely without them seeming a bit too out of left field. As for today's episode, we're going to be looking back at Series 3, Episode 2, Napoleon's Bony Parts. Holding an 8.4 on IMDb, the episode is credited as being written by Tom Fontana and was directed by guest director Matt Dillon. Born February 18th, 1964 in New Rochelle, New York and growing up in nearby Mamaronek, Dylan's film debut came in 1979's Over the Edge, a role he won while still in high school and even cut class to attend the audition. Other early roles also include Little Darlings and My Bodyguard, both from 1981 and were both considered box office successes. In 1982, Dylan appeared in the movies New Liar, Tex and The Great American Fourth of July and Other Disasters, the latter of which is unavailable to the public due to a legal dispute and the only copies of which are held in the UCLA archives. As his acting resume continued to grow throughout the 1980s, with leads in films such as The Outsiders and Rumblefish, Dylan made his Broadway debut in 1985, appearing in The Boys of Winter, and also provided voiceover work for the 1987 documentary Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam. Dylan received critical acclaim for his role as Bob, a drug addict in the Gus Van Sant-directed Drugstore Cowboy in 1989. The film was a critical success and won four awards at the Film Independent Spirit Awards in 1990, with Dylan winning the award for Best Male Lead. While he struggled to capitalise on this acclaim at the turn of the decade, including an appearance in 1993's Mr Wonderful, a film which will be mentioned a few times on this episode, Dylan had a resurgence of popularity after appearing in 1995's To Die For, reuniting with Gus Van Sant and starring alongside Nicole Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix. Over the next couple of years, Dylan would have leading roles in the movie Beautiful Girls from 1996 and 1997's In and Out, while in 1998 he appeared in Wild Things alongside Kevin Bacon, Neve Campbell and Denise Richards, and also starred in the smash hit There's Something About Mary, the fourth highest grossing movie of the year globally behind Godzilla, Saving Private Ryan and Armageddon. The episode is also dedicated to the memory of Noel Benn, the American novelist behind The Kremlin Letter and The Big Stick Up at Brinks, 
as well as the controversial Lindbergh The Crime, where he delved into the possible fake kidnapping of the baby of American pilot Charles Lindbergh. Ben also wrote for TV, including a 1989 episode of Tattingers, as well as writing on seven episodes of Homicide Life on the Street between 1993 and 1999. The episode was originally broadcast on July 21st, 1999, a day on which Lilly Endowment Incorporated presented a $50 million grant to San Francisco's Hispanic Scholarship Fund. Also on this day, U.S. Navy divers uncovered the bodies of John F. Kennedy Jr., son of the assassinated U.S. President, as well as his wife Carolyn and his sister-in-law Lauren Bassett, from the wreckage of a plane that Kennedy was piloting, which crashed on July 16th over Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Napoleon Bonaparte. A poor Italian boy who grew up to be the emperor of the French and almost the whole world. Well, maybe grew up is the wrong way to say it, you know, since he was never taller than five foot two, but you don't have to be a big man to make a big difference. So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus giving us a very quick piece about Napoleon, proclaiming him a poor Italian boy who grew up to be the emperor of France and says that maybe grew up is the wrong term to use as he never grew up to be taller than five foot two. Now, famously, Napoleon was considered to be quite short, but these measurements are based on French units of measurements from the period. If we were to use modern units of measurements, it would be a towering 5'7", which obviously isn't considered a giant, but wouldn't be considered short either. Probably say that's a roundabout average height. Also, as you know, I do like to give a bit of history to events or people mentioned on the show, but we'd be here for a long-ass time if I was to do that for Napoleon, so we'll skip out on that this time and just go through the basics. I'm sure there are a ton of history podcasts and documentaries that will do a much better job than I on the life and history of Napoleon, so do go seek those out if you're interested. So Napoleon Bonaparte was born to Italian parents, Carlo Bonaparte and Letizia Ramolino, in Corsica, France on August 15, 1769, and was named the first Council of France on November 10, 1799, aged just 30 years old. He was also named President of the Italian Republic on January 26, 1802, the first Emperor of France in 1804, his first reign lasting until 1814, as well as the King of Italy in 1805, and Protector of the Confederation of the Rhine in 1806. Napoleon passed away on May 5th, 1821, on the island of St. Helena, where he had been imprisoned for six years after being exiled by the British. So the main episode opens with Beecher sitting by himself in M-City, staring off into space, and placing his walking cane over his shoulders, as Augustus' narration mentions about not needing to be a big man to make a big difference. The way he puts that cane over his shoulders, it's similar to a pose that Alice Cooper used to do in his act. Possible nod to Lee Turgeson's appearance as Terry in Wayne's World, which featured an appearance from Alice Cooper. Although having said that, I don't think they have a scene together. I'm pretty sure it's only Wayne and Garth that go to the Alice Cooper gig. There's a flashback to Beecher killing Metzger as well as a quick go-around of the inmates talking about the killing. We saw a similar technique used when they were all talking about Diane and Beecher supposedly having an affair, as well as in the aftermath of Keller breaking Beecher's limbs. I'm sure this technique doesn't just get rolled out whenever Beecher is involved, but he has been a common feature of them so far. Tying into Augustus' narration, nobody seems to be suspecting Beecher as being the one to have killed Metzger, which kind of shows Beecher's standing amongst the inmates at this point. He isn't considered a threat, so his actions on this occasion seem like they're going to fly under the radar. Rebido and Bousmalis are glad that Metzger's dead, but Augustus says you might be happy now, but what if his replacement is someone worse? 
Cut to McManus in his office with Leo, explaining about how the relationship between the unit manager, i.e. himself, and the CO supervisor has to be based on trust and mutual respect. Leo agrees with him as McManus makes a point about how he doesn't want to promote from within, because that person may already have loyalties and prejudices with certain individuals, but he'd rather bring in a fresh face from the outside. Leo asks if he knows a guy, and conveniently, McManus does, recommending his friend Sean Murphy, who he says he grew up with and has been working at Attica for the last eight years. We covered Attica back in Series 1, so I won't go into all of that again, but it is still a working prison today, and in the timeline would have housed famous inmates such as Valentino Dixon, who at the time was serving a sentence for murder, but he was released in 2018 after serving 27 years following another man's confession to the crime, as well as convicted murderer Colin Ferguson. However, Attica's most famous inmate at the time was Mark David Chapman, the man who killed John Lennon, although he's no longer housed at Attica, transferring to Wade Correctional Facility in Alden, New York in 2012. This episode aired one year prior to Chapman becoming eligible for parole at the turn of the century, something that he has been denied at each of his biannual hearings. His next parole hearing, which will be his 11th, is scheduled to take place in August of this year. But Manor says that he trusts Sean with his life, as Leo says that in this job he'll have to, as he then goes to leave the office. But Manus asks, is that a yes or not? Leo sarcastically asking, do I ever say no to you? Lucky he didn't say no, because McManus mentions that Sean is on his way before turning his attention to the window that overlooks the cafeteria and the kitchen. I thought that was a really nice scene transition, going from his office to the cafeteria like that. Down at the Nazi table, Schillinger is sat chewing on an apple, and he doesn't understand why the CEOs are acting like Metzger's death is no big deal, and that they'd normally rally round after one of their own gets killed, and he finds it strange that there's been no memorial service or an investigation, or that the prison wasn't even put into lockdown. He's talking to Robson, who we haven't seen since the start of Series 2 when Beecher bit his dick off, and he questions whether or not they found out that Metzger was working with them, as Schillinger says they'll have to conduct their own investigation as he continues to chew on his apple. As he gets up to leave, he and Boost Malley's bump into each other, Schillinger calling him an arsehole and to watch his step. He then hocks his chewed-up apple into Boost Malley's food, which frankly didn't look too appetising to begin with, if anything, he's had an apple sauce added to it, which I'd consider to be an improvement. Boosmalis confronts him about spitting in his food, but Schillinger, with a little help from Nuggets, makes Boosmalis sit and chow down on what I hope is some sort of porridge. Ribado doesn't offer any help to Boosmalis, he's probably seen Schillinger do this a bunch of times to various people, perhaps even himself, and by this point is just going with it. I'm enjoying how they're keeping Schillinger involved with the M-City characters, even though he's been housed in Unit B away from everyone. Of course, his feud with Beecher will run and run, but he's also got issues going on with Ryan over his abuse of Cyril, and last episode he started to develop problems with Saeed, perhaps as revenge for Saeed refusing to defend him over the plot to murder Beecher. Even though he is one of the main villains on the show and his whole belief system is completely fucked, I'm struggling not to enjoy Schillinger whenever he's on screen. And you can attribute a lot of that to J.K. Simmons' performance. His facial expressions and his delivery of dialogue are some of the best things on the show. Cut to Cyril meeting up with Ryan to try and get him to go down and make breakfast, saying that they're late for work. But Ryan tells him they're not working the kitchen today, and that Ryan needs to visit with his lawyer. Cyril, however, complains that he's hungry and that he'll go by himself, but Ryan refuses. Cyril once again complains that he's hungry, which is the straw that breaks the camel's back for Ryan, who asks Cyril to quit sweating him. 
First time that we've seen some dissension between the O'Reilly brothers, which is understandable to a certain degree, as it must be difficult for Ryan having to look out for his brother 24-7. We also hear a voice asking for Ryan to hurry up because he needs some tits, so he's back dealing drugs, as Cyril walks off to go and get himself some food. We quickly see that Cyril being by himself was a bad idea as he runs into Robson in the cafeteria. He asks Cyril if he remembers him from Unit B and mentions that he's friends with Schillinger, who's hanging around in the background chewing on another apple, and shoots Cyril a menacing wink. Robson mentions that this is the first time that he's seen Cyril without Ryan around, and says that maybe they can have a little fun as he runs his fingers through Cyril's hair, and to give him some of that sweet pussy he's heard about. Cyril, however, is wise enough now to see where this is going, and lamps Robson right in the mouth, leading the officers Menio and Mustache to run in and break up the fight. McManus watches on from his window as Robson is taken back to Unit B, and Cyril is escorted away. We cut to a staircase that we've never seen before, and I don't think we ever do again, where Gloria is leaving for the day, but she runs into Ryan, who has been escorted by an officer. Ryan says that he's just met with his lawyer, and that the DA has added 40 years to his sentence following his confession to having Cyril kill Preston, and that he did it all for her. He returns to M-City and heads up to his pod to find Cyril, but Cyril is nowhere to be found. In fact, there seems to be no one in M-City at all apart from a janitor, which was a good bit of direction that emphasised the impending loneliness not only for Ryan, but Cyril as well, who we see is starting his second spell in the hall, shouting that he wants to see his brother, as the hatch on the door is closed. Cut to McManus giving his mate Sean Murphy a tour of the prison, who says that he was a little apprehensive when he received the call. Sean Murphy is played by Robert Clahessy, who you will recognise from TV and film for various roles of law enforcement, as well as having connections to the world of boxing, which I'll come to in a moment. Born June 10th, 1957 in the Bronx, and the son of John Clahessy, a member of the South Bronx 41st Precinct, Robert has been able to channel the police persona into his acting. After graduating from Pearl River High School, Robert studied at State University of New York at Purchase, which was the same school as fellow Oz alumni Edie Falco, Kirk Acevedo, and Seth Gilliam. While his acting debut was credited as a gym teacher in the 1985 short film Molly's Pilgrim, Robert's first recurring role came the following year in the form of Patrick Flaherty in the seventh and final season of Hill Street Blues on NBC, appearing in 20 episodes. From 1987 to 1988, Robert appeared in 19 episodes of ABC's O'Hara, starring alongside Pat Morita, most famous as Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid series of movies, as well as the definitive voice of Batman, Kevin Conroy. Robert played law-based roles in minor appearances in Sent Elsewhere, where he played a policeman, and in The Believers, where he played a diner detective. In the late 80s and early 90s, Robert had roles in the short-lived One of the Boys, playing Mike Lakowski, as well as appearances in Matlock and Roseanne, before appearing in 10 episodes of Laurie Hill in 1992, although only 5 episodes of the show aired before it was pulled from the schedules and cancelled due to poor ratings, despite having the popular sitcom Home Improvement as its lead-in. In 1995, Robert appeared in one episode of Homicide Life on the Street, which means that there won't be a homicide or nomicide this week, as well as single episode appearances in shows such as NYPD Blue, Murder, She Wrote, The Practice, and Boy Meets World. Along with two episodes of Chicago Hope and an appearance in Remember WENN on American Movie Classics, now known as AMC, Robert made his stage debut the week before this episode aired, playing the part of Mitch in Hartford Stage's acclaimed production of A Streetcar Named Desire. Mamanis explains that he thinks he and Sean would make a good team and that they might be able to turn ours around, 
but they're interrupted by Ryan, who's demanding that Mamanus let Cyril out of the hall. Mamanus explains that Cyril hit another inmate, which he is right about, but Ryan says that Cyril wouldn't start a fight and was only retaliating to the taunts from the Nazis. Mamanus says that he'll look into getting Cyril out of the hall, but tells Ryan to take off. I like the positioning of McManus up on the balcony looking down at Ryan. It's another example of McManus' god complex looking down at the Emerald City malls. Sean asks a couple of questions about Ryan as McManus explains about Cyril's bust-up and how it got him thinking about how during his time at Attica, Sean was responsible for organising a boxing programme and that maybe they could try it in Oz. Sean says that they'll need time, gloves and a good insurance policy, but he certainly seems receptive to the idea and up to the challenge. As I mentioned a moment ago, Robert Clahessy is no stranger to boxing, having competed in the 1975 NYC Golden Gloves tournament at New York's Madison Square Garden. Two of Robert's brothers also competed in the Golden Gloves, his brother John having won the 1970 heavyweight sub-novice tournament before turning pro later that year. John's most famous fight was a points decision defeat to Chuck Wepner in Bayou, New Jersey, a place which itself has an Oz connection, but I'll talk more about that in a future episode. While he might have the support of his mate, McManus needs to get his colleagues on side too. Each group, the Muslims, the Irish, the Italians, whatever, will promote one boxer. And then we'll have a series of elimination bouts until there are two finalists, and then we have the big championship bout. Organized violence. It's worked in other prisons, Ray. Yeah, he's right. Whether it's rodeo or baseball, sporting events, focus the inmates' aggression in a very positive way. Well, it's not their aggressions I'm concerned about. It's the gambling. You start something like this, the bet's going to be all over. It's already all over the place, Leo. These guys bet on everything from the Super Bowl to Tic Tac fucking Toe. I mean, it's not like drugs. It's not hurting anyone. Leo? Well, let's see if the commissioner signs off. So Sister Pete seems up for a bit of a scrap. Leo doesn't want to say one way or the other, while Ray is damn opposed to what he calls organized violence. We've talked previously about McManus' naivety, but we also see an example of Leo's here too, seemingly unaware that there is a gambling problem within the prison. But most importantly, he didn't say no to the boxing, instead putting the decision in the hands of the commissioner. Sister Pete also mentions about prison baseball and rodeos. The Angola Prison Rodeo has been running since 1965 at Louisiana State Penitentiary, running on one weekend in April and every Sunday in October. With the slogan of being the wildest show in the South, the rodeo also includes an arts and craft show with pieces by some of the inmates, and in 2010 also included a horse sale alongside the rodeo, with horses bred and trained by inmates. The spring version of the rodeo raises around $450,000 annually, which is used to fund seminary classes at the prison, as well as pay for inmate funerals, education programs, and maintenance of the prison's six chapels. There have also been documentary films focused on the events, including Simeon Sofa's Wildest Show in the South, The Angola Prison Rodeo, and Jeff Smith's Six Seconds of Freedom. Of course, being held in a prison also caused its fair share of controversy for the rodeo, with the 2016 bull ride resulting in the death of an inmate, and sadly the 2017 event was marred by the rape of a 13-year-old girl by inmate Lederick Davis, a convicted killer who's been housed at the prison since 1996. The 2019 event also saw a number of injuries. As far as boxing program goes, particularly in New York and New Jersey, they date back to the 1960s when they were introduced at Trenton State Prison. Inmates could learn to be either a fighter, a trainer, or a cutman, 
and it's even had its own sanctioned championships, with James Scott becoming the New Jersey Prison Light Heavyweight Champion in the 70s. Following a number of releases and subsequent incarcerations, Scott would have 11 professional fights between 1978 and 1981 while incarcerated at Railway State Prison in Woodbridge Township, New Jersey, where he won nine of those bouts. Also in the early 1970s, Peachy Davis, who fought at middleweight, and Bobby Guthridge, who plied his trade at welterweight, both fought professionally, although their prison status wasn't made known to spectators. Over the next several years, around two dozen inmates throughout the state fought in either New York State or as far afield as New Mexico. One such inmate, Randy Milton, fought Sugar Ray Leonard on April 13, 1978 at the Memorial Auditorium in Utica, New York, suffering an 8th round TKO to the eventual world champion. The programs were considered to be well received by prison wardens as well as boxing promoters, who were struggling to find professional fighters following various rule changes during the 1960s. However, boxing programs were halted in 1981 following the death of Charles Newell, who was serving a 6-12 year sentence for armed robbery, who passed away due to a brain injury suffered during a 1980 fight held at the Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut, and raised questions about using inmates in professional fights. Although prison officials were keen to keep the programs going, the Commissioner of the State of Corrections, John Manson, even labelling them positive and goal-directed, the programs were terminated, leading the protests from inmates. Slowly but surely, boxing programs were introduced into the prison system, although they faced tough regulations in order to operate. While serving an 18-year sentence at Greaterford Prison in Pennsylvania, and although having boxed in his youth, Bernard Hopkins rediscovered his love for boxing through the prison's boxing program, attributing his personal discipline to his experiences while serving time. Hopkins would go on to have a 95-4 career as an amateur and a 55-8 career as a professional, winning world titles in the middleweight and light heavyweight divisions. McManus Council of Inmates meet to discuss the program, and a quick go-around at the table shows that the council currently consists of Chucky, Ryan, Luis Baptista, someone from the Bikers, Tony Masters, played by Stephen Wishnoff, who you heard at the start of the show, Nuggets, Saeed, Kenny, and Augustus. There is someone else sat next to Saeed, but I couldn't work out who it was and we don't see them on camera. Chucky says that he did used to do some boxing, which in real life is true. Chuck Zito's father was a professional boxer, and Chuck did fight at amateur level himself, competing in the Golden Gloves, much like Robert Clahessey. I've yet to do a proper introduction for Chuck Zito as Chucky Pancamo, and seeing as his crime flashback doesn't come for quite some time yet, I think he finally gets one in Series 5, now is probably as good a time as any to do one, although it's going to be a little different from the others. Born Charles Carmine Zito Jr. on March 1st, 1953, Chuck dropped out of high school at the age of 17 and married his girlfriend at the time, Kathy. A motorcycle lover, Zito was instrumental in establishing the New Rochelle Motorcycle Group, who later merged with the Chingaling Nomads, based in New York. Upon leaving the group in 1980, Zito would join up with the Hells Angels, the notorious outlaw 1% group, and even helped establish the New York chapter of the group, where he acted as the chapter's president. In addition to his biker antics, Zito also started up his own bodyguard agency, Charlie's Angels Bodyguard Services protecting stars such as Lorna Luft and her half-sister Liza Minnelli, who would recommend Zito to a number of fellow celebrities, allowing for Zito to develop Hollywood contacts. Earning a couple of acting credits in the early 80s, Zito's early career was mainly focused on stunt work, acting as Mickey Rock's stunt double in 1985's Year of the Dragon. 
Zito continued to work as a stunt performer into the 90s on films such as Hudson Hawk, A Bronx Tale, Carlito's Way, The Rock, and Eraser, as well as earning acting credits in Love, Cheat and Steal, New York Undercover, and Gia before landing the role of Chucky Pancamo on Oz. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a little bit of a different introduction as Chuck Zito's life is strangely fascinating compared to others on the show. And this is highlighted in Zito's book, Street Justice, where being friends with Zito is described by Pamela Anderson as having made the world a safer place. He is the real deal, America's bad boy. Not my words, folks, the words of Pamela Anderson. Now, this book is one of those celebrity books, much like Motley Crue's The Dirt, where it's as true as you want it to be. And I'm sure there are parts of it that are on the level and happened exactly as they say it did. But there is a lot of stuff in there that leaves you going, yeah, that didn't happen like that though, did it? And one such story, which I have seen on another website, relates to Zito supposedly getting into a fight with the muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme. So gather around as I tell you a tale for a new segment which I'm calling The Truth, according to Joe Zito. This story here is from February 1998 and occurred, supposedly, just prior to Zito starting work on Oz during the series 2, and it goes as follows. I first met Jean-Claude in 1992. He'd been a legitimate martial artist at one time, a black belt who'd competed successfully in Belgium. But now his attention was focused squarely on Hollywood. We were introduced at a beauty pageant sponsored by Hawaiian Tropic. I'd been hired to do security, the pageant coincided with a big motorcycle event known as Bike Week, and Jean-Claude was one of the three celebrity judges. The others were Chad McQueen and O.J. Simpson. When the week ended, Jean-Claude asked me if I'd be interested in working as his personal bodyguard, and I accepted. But it became apparent to me fairly quickly that our relationship wouldn't last. Not that he wasn't respectful to me, he was. We trained together, sparred a few times, and generally got along alright. But I just didn't hit it off with him the way I usually do with my clients. More often than not, I become friends with the people who hired me. I genuinely like them, and they like me. When you're spending that much time together, you have to develop a certain rapport, and I never felt like I had that with Jean-Claude. Why? I don't know. It's hard to explain. For one thing, I didn't like his demeanour, his attitude. I'd worked with some of the biggest stars in the world, and most of them made a concerted effort to put people at ease. They were comfortable with their celebrity, and they didn't wield it arrogantly. They were nice to the small people who crossed their path on a daily basis. The limo drivers, the hotel maids, waiters and waitresses, and especially to their fans. In other words, they seemed to realise how fortunate they were. Jean-Claude, on the other hand, acted like the world owed him something. He wasn't gracious. In fact, sometimes he could be downright mean. I was accustomed to working with stars who were considerate to other people. Being with Jean-Claude made me uncomfortable, so after a few weeks, we parted ways. There was no big scene, no fight, nothing. It was a mutual decision. Over the course of the next few years, our paths crossed a few times, and there always seemed to be tension between us. It's hard to explain, but I always got the feeling that Jean-Claude felt insecure around me. He was defensive, unfriendly. There wasn't any open animosity, nothing on the surface, but I could tell that he didn't like me. Maybe he didn't like the fact that when we worked together, sometimes I'd get more attention than he did. 
Maybe it had something to do with him being an actor who fashioned himself as a real tough guy. I was the tough guy. The street guy. And he knew it. To be perfectly candid, I think Jean-Claude felt threatened by me. Anyway, by February of 1998, it had been several years since we'd had a meaningful conversation. As far as I was concerned, we were neither friends nor enemies. Just two men who once had to work together. I guess Jean-Claude felt differently. We ran into each other one night at Scores, an upscale New York strip club where I liked to hang out. I was sitting there, eating my steak, minding my own business, when Jean-Claude walked in with Mickey Rourke and a few of his buddies. I figured, hey, life's too short, why hold grudges? So I went over to Jean-Claude, pulled up a chair and said hello. Right away he copped an attitude. Hey, Chuck Zito, he said, barely making eye contact. Now, I know my last name, it was pretty obvious that he was trying to be an arsehole, but I just decided to stay away from him. I didn't want or need any trouble. A little while later though, I was approached by a guy named Frankie, one of the club's bouncers, who had seen me talking with Jean-Claude. Hey Chuck, he said, why are you wasting your time with that prick? What do you mean? I just heard him talking about you in the bathroom. I looked over at Jean-Claude, who was in the process of getting a lap dance from some long-legged honey. What did he say? I asked him for an autograph and told him we had a mutual friend, Chuck Zito. Then he started laughing, saying you had no heart, shit like that. Oh yeah? Yeah. You ask me, that guy's a scumbag. I knew the bouncer and I trusted him. There was no way he was lying. So I pulled my chair next to Jean-Claude, looked at the girl wriggling in his lap and said, Sweetheart, do me a favour, take your shoes for a walk. She got up and left, leaving me and Jean-Claude sitting just inches apart, staring at each other. We were surrounded by other people, but the music was loud, the place was jumping, and I'm not sure anyone realised we were on the edge of a brawl. Jean-Claude, were you just talking about me in the bathroom? He didn't respond at first. Then he slowly removed his glasses, tucked them into his breast pocket, and leaned even closer. And I thought, why the hell is he taking his glasses off? Unless he wants to fight. Yeah? So what? You tell Frankie I had no heart? Uh-huh. I didn't want to disrespect the people who owned the club, and I didn't want to disrespect Mickey, who came with Jean-Claude, but I couldn't just let this go. In all honesty, I have to say I was amazed Jean-Claude was being such a jerk, so I gave him one more chance to explain his actions. Why would you say that, I asked. He lowered his head. Because you're full of shit. Shocked, I reached out and grabbed him by the arm. The music was blaring and I thought perhaps I'd misheard him. Excuse me, Jean-Claude, did you say I'm full of shit? No, I said you're fucking full of shit. And with that I hit him, twice. A straight right and a left hook, bam bam. Jean-Claude's chair flipped over backward and he landed in the lap of my friend Kevin Lubick. As Jean-Claude tried to scramble to his feet, I started screaming at him. You fucking scumbag, I got no heart, you got no heart. This ain't the movies, asshole. this is the street and I own the fucking street. I started hitting him with everything I had. Jean-Claude barely even tried to fight back. He just tried to shield himself. When he covered his head, I hit him in the body. When he covered his body, I hit him in the face. It went like that for about 30 seconds until the bouncers jumped in, Mickey jumped in, and all my buddies jumped in and pulled me off Jean-Claude. He was tossed out of the club, and I left on my own, quickly, before the police arrived. I went straight to the hospital, because even though he hadn't landed a punch, I'd managed to hurt myself. I could feel my hand throbbing. Sure enough, X-rays showed a broken bone. This was no small matter since I was scheduled to start work on Oz the following Monday. The fight happened on a Thursday night. Through a friend, a photographer named Brian Hamill, 
I'd met Tom Fontana, the head writer and producer of Oz a few months earlier, at the premiere of a HBO movie called Only in America. We'd talked a little, and when Tom found out I'd been in prison and that I'd done a little acting and a lot of stunt work, he asked me if I'd be interested in reading for Oz. I couldn't say yes fast enough. Two weeks later I was offered the part of Chucky Pancamo, an Italian mobster. Interesting aside, the character's name was originally Sam Pancamo, but they changed it to Chucky when I got the role. I guess they were worried that I wouldn't answer to Sam. Now though, I was afraid I'd blown my big chance. I couldn't let the doctors cast me, because then everyone would know I'd gotten into a fight and I might lose the job. So I decided to tough it out, stay quiet, and hope the incident blew over. Fat chance. The next morning there was a huge photo of Jean-Claude on the cover of the New York Post along with the shrieking headline, Jean-Claude Van Slammed, muscled macho action star decked at scores. Even worse, the accompanying story referred to me as Chuck Zeta, Star of Oz. Star? I haven't even worked a day yet. Oh Christ, I'm going to get fired before I film a scene. But Tom Fontana is about the coolest guy around. Laughing, he came right up to me when I walked onto the set Monday morning and said, Hey Chuck, couldn't you hit the guy after the show aired? Would have been better publicity. So, I'll leave it up to you as to whether you're buying that story or not. Having read about it on another website, that would suggest there is an element of truth to it, and I do believe that Chuck Zito probably did get into a fight with JCVD, but I'm not buying that Zito straight up kicked the ass of a second-hand Shotokan Karate black belt, unless he cheap-shotted him first. Anyway, the council discusses the boxing program, Augustus saying that he also has some fight experience, Ryan joking about whether or not it was in the Special Olympics, which is cheap and harsh, but still very funny. Kenny asks if there's a prize purse up for grabs, and when McManus tells him no, he asks what's the point, Saeed saying that it's for bragging rights of their respective tribes. We also see a few of the fighters training for the tournament, so the participants are Cyril, Robson, Chucky, Kenny, Carlo, Hamid, and there are a couple of others training too, but those six are our main cast participants. We get a vignette of Cyril competing in a boxing fight, getting counted out by McManus, who's acting as the referee, and Augustus also does a turn dressed as Don King, who at this time was probably one of the most recognisable faces in boxing, describing Napoleon saying that there is only one step from the sublime to the ridiculous, and that maybe he knew Tim McManus. Cut to M-City where McManus meets up with Kenny and Malcolm, and he gives Malcolm his new work assignment, working down in the barbershop. Kenny obviously isn't very pleased to hear this, but Mamanus isn't taking any of Kenny's shit, saying, gee, I thought I was still running things. And Kenny then gets pissy about Mamanus not calling him Bricks. Face it, lad, your nickname's shit, that's why no one's calling you by it. And Mamanus only calls him it sarcastically as he leaves. Malcolm thinks that him being moved out of the kitchen is Napper's doing, and goes for a walk. Cut to the kitchen where Kenny confronts Napper about Malcolm's move. He isn't met with arms wide open though as Napper is talking to someone else, and Kenny even gets blocked by Chucky who seems to be dressed like a big roidy Johnny Cash in this scene. Napper says that he had nothing to do with Malcolm being taken out of the kitchen, and that Mamanus has his own plans. Kenny asks for Napper to get Mamanus to change his mind, but Napper says there are things that even he isn't capable of, which Kenny calls bullshit. Napper eventually admits that he doesn't like or trust Malcolm, and that Malcolm won't be returning to work in the kitchen. The scene ends with Chucky telling Kenny to get to work, as we head off to the barber shop where Augustus is getting a touch-up on his dreadlocks. The barber here is played by Rocket's Red Glare, who presumably has a sibling named Bombs Bursting in Air. Real name Michael Mora, not to be confused with the former heavyweight boxing champion, 
Red Glare was a fixture in the East Village's punk music and pornographic film scene, and also worked as a bouncer at the Red Bar on East 7th Street, a hangout for artists such as Jean-Michel Basquet and Keith Haring, and also worked as a roadie for The Hassles, the band that featured Billy Joel before he embarked on his solo career. Red Glare also acted as a bodyguard, but more specifically a drug supplier to Sid Vicious, bass player of the Sex Pistols, and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen. On the night in which Sid allegedly killed Nancy, Red Glare is reported to have delivered a quantity of drugs to the couple's room at the Chelsea Hotel. In his book Pretty Vacant, A History of Punk, Phil Strongman states that he believes that Red Glare was Nancy's real killer, an allegation which Red Glare always denied to the press, however would often confess to close friends, and while some would take him at his word, others would claim that Red Glare would exaggerate stories for attention. Red Glare also worked as a stand-up comic and had a number of acting roles, often playing seedy characters, drawing inspiration from his tough upbringing as well as his long-standing drug addiction. He doesn't have a name in this, he's simply credited as the barber, but he's asking Malcolm whether or not he has any experience cutting hair, Malcolm saying that his dad used to be a barber and he learned from watching him. The barber says that he needs some help as the guy he's been sent don't know the difference between a Princeton and a ball cut and neither did I until I looked it up on Google Images. A Princeton is just a tidy haircut, really. The kind that Matt Damon would have if he want a point of reference. Bowl cut, on the other hand, of course, is the Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, and was pretty popular in the 90s, whereas nowadays you'd just look a bit weird if you had that. Augustus says that he wouldn't mind having a shave while he's there, the barber joking that he wouldn't mind a blowjob from Neve Campbell, who was a big star at the time with the success of the first two Scream movies, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, had appeared with episode director Matt Dillon in Wild Things the previous year. He leaves Malcolm to take care of Augustus' shave as he goes for a smoke. Malcolm applies some shaving cream and grabs a cutthroat razor, and Augustus is immediately regretting his decision to have a shave and tries to tell Malcolm that he's changed his mind, but Malcolm tells him not to squirm, otherwise he'll end up cutting him. He asks Augustus what he's in for. Personally, I'd have asked how come he's still there and what happened with the casket, but Augustus tells him about his murder charge. It doesn't look like we're going to get an answer to what happened with Augustus' Series 2 escape plan, so I guess we're just going to have to pop that into the Unsolved Mysteries file, along with whatever happened to D'Angelo. Malcolm says that he can do better than that, and tells Augustus about killing an entire family, parents, kids, gramps and all, and when asked why, he says that he just did it for fun, and we get a few more shots of him rubbing the blade over Augustus' neck. Augustus grabs Malcolm's hand and asks why he's fucking with him, and says that he's in for armed robbery. Malcolm admits that that's the crime that he's in for, claiming that he never got caught for the murders, and says that he never will. Augustus has had enough and demands his wheelchair, which Malcolm gets him, joking that he aims to please. Augustus gives his neck a quick check, but he's okay from the ordeal. I thought this was really well done with the low music playing underneath the scene. It added just the right amount of tension, and having a fan favourite in Augustus helped to give Malcolm that little bit of menace. Character selection for something like this is really important. Had this scene been done with someone like, let's say, Chico, who we haven't been given a reason to like, there's no danger there, whereas with Augustus we've got that little bit more of a relationship with that character. Augustus heads off to the computer room to research these murders, and we get some more of these rarely seen dissolve shots in this looking stuff up montage, which as South Park and Team America taught us makes it look like more time has passed, especially if you fade out at the end. He does find articles relating to the murders, so it is an event that has taken place, and he even looks disturbed reading about them, 
but there doesn't seem to be anything linking Malcolm to them. He meets up with the rest of the others and asks their opinion. You clowns remember a couple of months back, a family named Chinchimino getting slaughtered? Yes, as I recall, the murders were particularly brutal. And they never found the killer? I think I have. Who? Never mind who. He told me he did it, the fuck. You know the family? No. And why are you so bent out of shape? Listen, I ain't no saint. Not even close. I killed somebody. I did one wrong thing, taking a life. I'm doing time for it, you know? Sir, toss that down here. This fuck has got no remorse. He took those lives for pure pleasure. He had no reason to kill. And he's getting away with it. Yeah, kids today. There's no honor, no ethics, no values. That's because no one's willing to stop the erosion. No one has a vested interest in justice anymore. Those two kids. One was only 18 months old. Lunch! So Augustus seems to have bought into Malcolm's story, and he isn't sure what to do next, so he heads off to speak with Saeed. It was nice to see Officer Armstrong back too, it's been a while since we've seen him. He's played by Timothy L. Brown, credited simply as Tim Brown, and at this time Oz was his only acting credit, as he was a working member of the New York Fire Department, much like Philip Scorzarella, who plays Officer Menia. In his line of work, Brown was a first responder during the 1993 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, as well as a member of the New York Urban Search and Rescue Task Force, who responded to the Oklahoma City bombing perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols in 1995. A very brave man, he's retired from the fire department now, but I will talk more about that in a future episode. Augustus explains to Saeed that he's conflicted about what to do. On the one hand, he says that he isn't a rat, but on the other, he can't stop thinking about the two murdered children, saying they had not been given a chance at life, and if they were his kids, he'd want someone to speak for them. Saeed asks him whether or not he's sure that he believes Malcolm's story, Augustus saying that he does. Saeed admits that he hasn't spent much time around Malcolm, but he doesn't feel that Malcolm comes across as a man that's honest, and that he might just be saying these things to earn credibility among fellow inmates, and he even mentions Jiggy Walker and how he did something similar. One thing that the show does really well, and I touched on this in the last episode, is call back to previous events, keeping them fresh in the viewer's mind. In the modern day of binge-watching an entire series, this is somewhat of a lost art form, but back when you had to wait and watch a show unfold week by week, this method of calling back was so important. Augustus asks Saeed what he should do, and Saeed tells him that he needs to talk to Malcolm, getting him to tell him the whole story, and that if he does believe him, then the difficult part is going to be getting Malcolm to confess. It was nice to see this interaction between Saeed and Augustus, and that Augustus still has some respect for Saeed even after the botched appeal hearing. You could understand there being heat between the two and them never speaking again, but it says a lot about the respect that Saeed commands and how others view him. We then get a flashback of Malcolm slashing the mother's throat, tearing off her nightgown and raping her, as he then hears a crying in the distance as we cut back to him telling the story to Kenny and Augustus. He describes killing the child, which Kenny seems to take great joy in and finds hilarious, but Augustus says that Malcolm should turn himself in and that he'd be as famous as Manson, of course referring to Charles Manson. Much like Napoleon, I won't go into the history of Charles Manson, otherwise we'll be here forever, but there are a shitload of podcasts, documentaries, movies, etc. that cover his story, so go check those out. Sick motherfucker! Damn, I Yo, you that. should turn yourself in, yo. Huh? 
No, 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 no. Think about it. Think on it. Think on it. Your shit would be famous, yo. You'd be naming a paper, picture on TV. You'd be like Manson up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll be moving straight to death row. No thanks, homie. Mm -mm. Nigga, you full of shit. You doubt my word, nigga? Yo, remember that uh, nigga used to be up here? What's his name? Jiggy Walker? Big ass talker. Came in here talking about, you know, he sold drugs to the governor the whole nine. Lying through his gold ass teeth. Look at you. Yeah, you know what? Look, fuck you. Fuck this Jiggy nigga. I don't care. I ain't lying. All I'm saying, yo, is you ain't lying? Give me proof. I got proof. Right. <laughs> I got videotape. Get the fuck out of here. Remember my homie Franklin? Up there in Polo Ground? He came with me. Mini can the whole dark deep. <laughs> Sick mother. When I do it, I do it. What? Damn. Yo, that's a tape I want to see. Yo. Me too, yo. God damn. I'd like to see that shit. Your ass need to be in here, motherfucker! So with this revelation about the tape, Augustus and Saeed go to visit with Leo. But he's told that there's no deal to be made and has nothing to gain, and that it's likely that Malcolm will deny everything. He says that he'll call the DA and try and get hold of the tape, and says that what Augustus is doing takes balls, which I thought was really good of him to say, recognising the situation that Augustus is potentially putting himself into. We see Malcolm being handcuffed and led away by Armstrong, as well as Augustus being placed into protective custody, where we also see that Keller is still in his cell, as Augustus tells us about Napoleon's legacy, to close out Act 1. A man Napoleon conquered a lot of places, created a lot of laws that we still use today. He made his mark on history. And what does he get for it? They named a dessert after him. They named a beef after Wellington. Fucking Caesar got a salad. But Napoleon? He's on the tray with sweets. Next to the creme brulee. Act 2 gets underway with the inmates watching a news report about the lawsuit that Said is putting together suing the state for the deaths in the riot. And on screen we see Arnold Zellman, the lawyer that's assisting Said, as well as some family members of the deceased. One of those being Trisha Ross, who stood behind Zellman. Arnold Zellman is played by Larry Pine, but this is all that we see of him in this episode, so I will talk more about him further down the line. Gotta say, I did love Beecher reverting back to his crazy self for a few seconds, yelling from the back of the room. We also see the staff watching the same report, and Zellman says that they're looking for damages totaling $45 million. Diane meets up to talk with McManus about how the ghost of Scott Ross is rearing its ugly head once more, as they walk through the more familiar stairwell that we usually see. McManus tries to reassure her that the state might settle out of court, but Diane thinks that would be Devlin admitting guilt, to which McManus says that maybe it's time they told the truth regarding Scott's shooting. Diane, however, tells him that if they do that, she'll likely go to jail, but also mentions that she could get away with only being fired due to her circumstances, those being that she has a dependent daughter and a dying mother. But she also says that McManus himself could lose his job for lying, and asks are they willing to take that chance. Cut back to M-City where Kenny is shaking hands with Saeed and Arif mentions about the increased morale, saying that everyone in the unit is recharged. Odd to see M-City acting as a cohesive unit for once, even if it is only momentarily. They start to make their way out to get dinner, but Saeed says that he can't go with them as he has another meeting with Trisha. And Saeed is grinning from ear to ear the way that a boy with a crush does. Arif asks why he's meeting with her again as she's already agreed to be part of the lawsuit. But Saeed says that Trisha has asked him for spiritual counselling. 
Arif tells him to send her to a priest, and we very nearly get the confrontation between the two men that's been brewing. Saeed even saying, how dare you? But Hamid calms them down before things can boil over, and reminds Saeed that Schillinger is still shooting his mouth off, telling everyone that Saeed is attracted to Trisha, and that by meeting with her again, people might get misconstrued. Saeed reassures them that his heart is pure, and to let people misconstrue if they want to. Interfaith relationships are obviously not illegal, it's not a law, it's a belief system. But most faiths are of the belief that those relationships should only be between those who share those same beliefs. Which is why this supposed crush of Saeed is causing so many issues within the Muslim group. You get a good example of the divide between Saeed and Trisha when they meet, as he tells her "Assalamu alaikum, and she doesn't understand what that means, which I've mentioned previously means peace be unto you. She pulls a photo of herself out of her bag and says that she wants Saeed to have it, but he refuses, saying that they're not allowed such personal items. She isn't taking no for an answer though, and puts it in his hand, saying that he should hide it under his pillow, as they also rub their fingers together. So while Saeed is saying that he remains pure of heart to his followers, he is clearly struggling with his emotions, and as I've mentioned before, could lead to people questioning his leadership. Cut to the kitchen where Hamid is quoting Surah Anur 2430 of the Quran, quoting, Tell the believing man to lower their gaze and guide their sexuality, although the second part of that can sometimes be to protect themselves and their privacy, or protect their private parts, and that God is aware of what they do. Arif asks Saeed about sexual desire being a powerful part of human nature, and how even the slightest part of that could ignite such desires, and he's asking Saeed to confirm whether or not what he's saying is true. He isn't just laying into Saeed with what he thinks about it, he's making Saeed admit it to them, and to himself. There is a moment where he has to ask Saeed a second time to answer, which Saeed does eventually as we then cut to Saeed in his pod, burning the photo of Trisha before he then heads off to meet with McManus. Interesting to see not only Arif continue to establish himself as the second-in-command of the Muslims, but also Hamid confronting Saeed. He mentioned when he first arrived that he's read Saeed's books, so while he's using the Holy Scripture here in this scene, he knows exactly what Saeed has said before, and is using those words against him, somewhat exposing Saeed to be a hypocrite of what he preaches. So Saeed heads off to meet with McManus, explaining how in Islam they fast in order to deny themselves the needs of dependency of their physical desires, such as food, drink, or sex. There's an awkward pause before McManus tells him that if he's come to ask for permission to fast, he doesn't care what Saeed does. Saeed says that it's more complex than just asking for permission, as he is only meant to fast during daylight hours, and must have a meal before dawn before repeating the process the next day. However, he's locked away in his pod at those times, and that's why he's asking for McManus to grant him the permission to have food in his cell. McManus, in a fantastic piece of product placement, tells him that this isn't Burger King and can't have it his way, and that Saeed doesn't deserve any special treatment, perhaps once again referencing their initial meeting. McManus, however, is willing to make a trade, and asks Saeed to drop the lawsuit. Saeed says that he isn't alone in the lawsuit and can't make that decision, which McManus, in the only way he can, calls it Bullshit. And that Saeed is the one that instigated all of this and convinced everyone to sue, and that he now needs to tell them not to. Saeed asks why McManus cares, and mentions that McManus isn't even named as a defendant, but McManus tells him that he wants to put the riot behind them. Saeed stresses that they can't be allowed to forget what happened, as we also see a flashback to McManus's brilliant Edge of Oblivion quote, 
and says that he won't allow McManus to forget his promise of turning over a new leaf when they all came back to M-City, which McManus says he hasn't forgotten. Saeed asks him one last time to grant him his request of being able to fast in line with his religion, but McManus flat out tells him no. Saeed says that what McManus is doing is unconstitutional. McManus asking, what are you going to do, file a lawsuit? But Saeed threatens to go on hunger strike as the scene closes. Bit of a step back between these two, as they did seem to be making some progress during Series 2 with their mutual respect for each other. Saeed, however, has thrown all of that away by bringing about this lawsuit, even though he has every legal right to do so. And we can chalk this up as another failed relationship for McManus. One relationship that does seem to be going well for him, though, is the one that he has with Claire, who is in the staff room with Diane. You were uh, right about Tim McManus. He's dreamy. I don't recall ever saying Tim McManus was dreamy. We've been going out. Oh, yeah? <clears throat> Let me guess. First, he took you to Al's diner on Chisholm. Yeah. He told you that his dad owned a diner up near Attica, how living outside that prison changed his life. Yeah. Second date, he canceled. Too much work. And then he took you to Ma Plume Blanche at top of the tower. The two of you sat watching the city, all a sparkle. He said he had feelings for you, and then you went back to his apartment and fucked. Actually, we fucked after the diner. Oh, speaking of horny little devil. So if you ever wondered how it's going to go down when Tim McManus asks, do you want to get dinner? That's your answer right there. Couldn't find anything for an Al's Diner on Chisholm, although I did find an Al's Deli on Fashion Avenue, which looks really fucking nice and isn't far from the Empire State Building. So if you're ever in New York City, go check that out. It looks fucking amazing. McManus says that he needs to talk with Diane privately. Diane jokingly calls him Sparkle, but McManus struggles with breaking the news to her that the hospital has been calling all day, trying to pass on the news to Diane that her mother has passed away. Diane says that she has to leave and start funeral arrangements, and McManus offers to help. And all the while, Claire is staring daggers through the pair of them. She is not liking that Diane and McManus still appear to be quite close. Augustus narrates about Napoleon being somewhat of a Lothario, as Claire heads into McManus' office and asks if he's heard from Diane and how she's doing. McManus bluntly tells her, how do you think she's doing? She's a mess. And Claire makes a cold comment about how Diane's mum's been dying for a year. She switches topics saying she's found a new Italian place to try, but Mamana says that he's going to have to cancel as he's promised Diane he'd pop by the funeral home. Claire goes to leave before turning back and launches into a tirade about how McManus said it was over between himself and Diane. Mamana tells her that Diane's mother has just died, that's why he was comforting her, but Claire continues to get on his case, which escalates into a full-on argument. We see that Kenny is sat across the way in one of the classrooms, and he can see what's going on as McManus and Claire continue to argue. McManus calling Claire a cloying bitch, meaning that she's becoming nauseating. And she tells him, I'll show you a cloying bitch, and she shoves him in the chest, which gets a reaction from the inmates watching on. McManus goes to close the window blinds, but Claire grabs him from behind around his neck, and the two fight. McManus defends himself and gets the upper hand as he holds Claire down on his desk, telling her to calm down. He holds her by the jaw, once again telling her to calm down before releasing her, allowing for Claire to storm out, but not before telling her that she's going to be fired. The inmates, apart from Adebisi, who was the only one not to react, continue to make a noise as McManus closes the blinds and we fade to black. 
Interesting to see how this plays out, as McManus was in the right to defend himself. If someone grabs you from behind around the neck, it's human nature to defend yourself, but the only witnesses he has to this are Kenny and a few of the other inmates, whose word is going to be questionable at best. Fade up and we see Clayton work in the reception when the Ricardo family arrive to visit with Carlo, and we then go to the visiting room, similar to the last episode. However, Carlo notices that his mother still isn't with them. This time she's at a choir practice, nudge nudge, wink wink. He questions why his sister isn't at the practice, as she's also in the choir. So no prizes for guessing that the Ricardo family are just making excuses for the mother not being there. And Carlo also notices that his brother Sergio has failed to make the trip. Daddy Ricardo drops the charade and says that Sergio has said that he doesn't want to come anymore, and that Carlo's mother doesn't want to see Carlo like this, but that she still loves him, as Carlo says that he understands. He switches topics, asking to see pictures of his sister's baby, as the scene closes. So chances are that next visit there will be even less people coming to visit Carlo, but at least he's still getting his fruit basket. Cut to Leo's office, where he's having a drink with Armstrong, Clayton and Diane, and finishing an anecdote. So Cone says to me, with a shake in his hand, I stuck it in his head, but I didn't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I love this end of an anecdote gimmick whenever it's used on a show. If it's done well, it leaves you wanting to know the rest of the story that came before. Clayton asks if there has ever been a time where Leo was afraid. Leo saying that he was afraid every time, and says that although he may not be down at ground level, he whispers a little prayer for their safety every time that he walks through the gates, and raises his cup. I thought that was really nice of Leo to tell them that, and it calls back to what McManus was saying to him earlier about work relationships. He can be a hard-ass when he needs to be, but Leo also needs his staff to know that they can depend on him. The buzzer sounds and everyone is off for the day, but Clayton says that he should drive Leo home, feeling that Leo has had a few too many shots. In the US, driving with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.08% or higher is illegal and is usually reached within about four drinks. So had Leo only had two shots, his BAC would have been around about 0.02%, and while not perfect, wouldn't be against the law. Of course, there are other factors to consider, as alcohol can affect a person in different ways, depending on their physical condition, their height, their weight, and even depending on what they've eaten during the day. They take a walk, and Clayton says that he does want to talk to Leo about being transferred out of the reception, stating that he didn't train to be a CEO to sit behind a desk. But Leo tells him bluntly that he promised Clayton's dying father that he would take care of him, which he's doing by not letting Clayton anywhere near any of the inmates, and goes to walk away. Clayton threatens to quit and go to another prison that will let him interact with the inmates, which makes Leo come back to him asking what the hell Clayton's trying to prove. Is it that he's as tough as his dad? And once again tells Clayton that his father died in Oz, his heart bleeding into Leo's arms, and that he isn't going to allow Clayton to suffer the same fate. Clayton says that he isn't 10 years old anymore, and that Leo can't stop him which stops Leo in his tracks of trying to talk sense. He tells Clayton that they'll talk about this tomorrow, and again goes to leave. Clayton asks Leo to give him his car keys, but Leo says that he can drive himself home, the conversation having sobered him up. Now, I did talk about Clayton last episode, but didn't give him a full introduction, which a few of you were polite enough to point out on social media. There was reason to the madness, however, because that episode was running so much longer than I had anticipated, and with having a number of new character introductions already in that one, I figured it better to introduce Clayton later on. So having said that, Clayton Hughes is played by Seth Gilliam. Born November 5th, 1968 in Long Island, New York, 
Seth is another alumni of the State University of New York at Purchase, graduating in 1990. Later that year, he made his TV debut, appearing in three episodes of The Cosby Show as Aaron Dexter. Other TV credits from around this time include appearances in Law and Order, playing the part of Babatunde a murder, which is a lot of fun to say, as well as the TV movies In the Eyes of a Stranger and 1994's Assault at West Point, the court-martial of Johnson Whittaker, where he played the title character and starred alongside Samuel L. Jackson and Sam Waterston, and also featured Oz co-star and fellow CEO Robert Clahessy. Seth made his feature film debut in 1993, appearing in Joey Breaker as Jeremy, and played an ER doctor in Mr. Wonderful, starring episode director Matt Dillon. Other film credits include the 1994 short film The Hardest Part, Jefferson in Paris from 1995, and in 1996 played the part of Altamayer in Courage Under Fire, which also featured an appearance from Jelko Ivanek. 1997 saw Seth appear in the movie Tar, as well as the Paul Verhoeven-directed Starship Troopers, playing the part of Sugar Watkins before appearing here on Oz. So we cut to the next day, and Clayton has seemingly been granted his transfer, and what better place to learn the ropes of working prison than by working M-City? He sat at the control desk, admittedly looking a little bored, as a fight breaks out downstairs between Carlo and Poet. Clayton runs down all guns blazing and tries to pull Carlo away, but Carlo forces Clayton back against one of the pod's glass and holds Clayton's nightstick to his throat, telling him you're not so tough now, terror showing in Clayton's eyes. Backup arrives for Clayton as Carlo backs away to fight off two other officers, asking who's the man, as he rather foolishly throws the nightstick away, which allows for one of the officers to whack him in the back of the legs, taking Carlo down. They take him to the hall as McManus comes over to check on Clayton, telling him to go to the hospital to get checked out, but Clayton assures him that he's okay. McManus asks Poet what caused the fight as Clayton makes his way back upstairs, asking the inmates what they're staring at, as we get a bunch of inmates playing in a makeshift band using various items as instruments. They had a really nice tribal sound going on. We see Carlo down in the hall doing some shadow boxing to close out Act 2. Take him to the hall! Get yourself checked out. I'm okay. What's this about? Motherfucking spick is crazy, B. Mumbling some shit about his mother, man. The fuck you looking at? gets underway with Augustus mentioning about Napoleon's final battle taking place at Waterloo, which for you date seekers occurred on June 18th, 1815, and also gives out about it being a stupid name to lose a battle at, and also mentions Watergate and White Water, suggesting to any aspiring politicians to stick to land. I'm hoping that's just Augustus giving out about the use of the name Water and didn't mean it literally, because if he'd consulted a map beforehand he'd see that Waterloo, a municipality in Belgium, is slap bang in the middle of the country, about 15 miles outside of Brussels, and around 17 miles from any coastline. The closest being Tenuzen in the Netherlands. Cut to the inmates watching Devlin on the news, talking about how inmates have tried to avoid the death penalty ever since it was reintroduced. 
clogging the court with what he calls needless appeals, and that legislators have agreed to reduce fees to court-appointed lawyers and public defenders in murder cases, presenting it as a win for taxpayers. Down on death row, Shirley meets with her lawyer, Lawrence Bailey, played by Peter Apel. Not going to do a big segment for him, as this is his only scene on the show, but he does have previous with Oz producer Barry Levinson, appearing in 1996's Sleepers, which also featured Terry Kinney. And I don't know, I might do that as an outside Oz one day, I've not decided yet. He also appeared in Mr. Wonderful, which I promised right at the start would get a few mentions on this episode. Lawrence tells Shirley that her appeal has been rejected, which she takes surprisingly well, and asks what the next step is. Lawrence tells her that normally it would go to the state Supreme Court, which Shirley seems well up for doing, but he tells her that he is recussing himself as a lawyer. Shirley asks if she's done anything wrong, but it's to do with these lower fees that Devlin mentioned on TV, and he says that he can't afford to work on her defence anymore. Shirley is starting to seem concerned, saying that the only lawyers who will take the lower rates won't be as good as Lawrence, and he gets up to leave. As he does, Shirley tries to play with his tie in a flirty sort of way, but even that isn't going to work this time, and Lawrence leaves. From across the way, Richie asks Shirley what's wrong, Shirley saying that it's hit her for the first time, that she's actually going to die, and we fade to black. Come back up and we're with Schillinger, who's meeting with his dad Hank, who we saw back in series 2 and is played by Dick Pacelli, who I mentioned last time we saw him, but something that I neglected to mention was that he's perhaps better known as Dick Richards, and was the drummer in Bill Haley and the Comets of Rock Around the Clock Fed, although Dick didn't play drums on the recording of the track. While a number of musicians have claimed to have recorded drums on the song, Dick confirmed in a 2016 interview that drum duties were handled by Billy Gusek, a trusted session musician. While Bill Haley passed away in 1981, the Comets continued to tour from 1987 onwards. He tells Schillinger that he has some bad news, and that Schillinger's son Andrew has been arrested. Schillinger asks what for, Hank saying it's either drugs or beating up a black man, but the lawyer is trying to sort it out. Schillinger asks who's defending him and not to hire Zanger. No idea who that is. It could be the defence attorney that Dylan Baker played back in series 2, but I don't think that character was ever given a name. Or maybe it's Schillinger's original lawyer from when he was convicted. Hank says that Andrew has a court-appointed lawyer, which angers Schillinger, who tells his dad to hire a real one. But Hank thinks that she sounds smart enough. Schillinger first off seems put out that the public defender is a woman, but doesn't flinch when he hears that her surname is Goldberg, which you would expect from him, but it doesn't happen, which makes it even funnier. He tells his dad to sort it out, which he says he's trying to do, but he isn't prepared to throw good money after bad, which is exactly what Schillinger's boys are. Schillinger saying that the apple doesn't fall far as the scene closes, which is a great way to not only be self-deprecating, but to also get a dig in on his dad in the process. In protective custody, Keller is looking at a porno mag having a tug as Leo approaches, and there's a bit of an awkward silence, which is understandable if you just walked in on a guy jacking it. Keller says that he needs to get out of PC and back into M-City, but Leo says that he's still there for a reason, and he needs him alive to testify against Schillinger. Keller says that he'll die of boredom before that, and that he can handle himself if Leo sends him back. There's a moment where Keller asks how many times a day a guy can jerk off, Leo rather bluntly saying it depends on the guy. I knew a kid at school who claimed that he managed to crack one off 36 times in one day, clearly not understanding the mathematics for his lie to work. I think the most I've managed is about in one day. 
According to European Urology, a study of 31,925 men from December 2016 found that ejaculating 21 times per month may lower the risk of developing prostate cancer, although these were based on subjects answering surveys and not based on any laboratory testing. So the inmates are watching Miss Sally as Keller is brought back into MC, Poet joking that he's only come back so he can watch the show with them. And Keller is staring a hole right through Nuggets and another member of the Aryans, who I don't think we've seen before. He heads into his pod where Beecher is brushing his teeth. He goes to run his fingers through Beecher's hair, but he slaps Keller's hand away. He says to Beecher that in all the months they've known each other, they've only ever kissed once, which was that time in the laundry room, and says that all he's been thinking about is kissing Beecher again, and he puts his hand on the back of Beecher's neck, but Beecher goes to push him away again. Keller, however, grabs Beecher by the shirt, saying that he did what Beecher asked, and asks if Beecher knows what that cost him. Beecher isn't buying any of this, saying that this could just be another scheme that Keller and Schillinger have cooked up, and asks how he is supposed to trust Keller, and make himself that vulnerable again. He goes back to brushing his teeth as we go off to the library, where Schillinger and Keller run into each other. They stare at each other, but nothing comes of it as we get a flashback from the end of the last episode where Schillinger was telling Diane about Keller being a dead man if he fucked with him. Those books on the shelves in the library all have their spines facing outwards apart from one which is called Bad Love, a 1994 novel by Jonathan Kellerman and the eighth book in his Alex Delaware detective series. I've no doubt that that book was placed that way on purpose, symbolising the relationship between the three men in this arc, and you can pick it up on Amazon for just $4.99. Cut to a supply room where Keller is doing some stacking, and holy shit, that is a lot of paper in that room. If someone drops a match in there, you're fucking doomed, because that place will light up like the 4th of July. Keller hears a noise off in the distance, and shouts out to find out if anyone is there. He turns out the light and grabs one of the bundles of paper, which, thinking about it, would make a pretty good weapon. Those things are fucking heavy. He shouts, if you're coming, come on and bring it, but is grabbed from behind and stabbed in what looks like the kidney area. The attacker runs out, leaving Keller in a heap on the floor, and I've watched this back so many times to try and see who this is, but you only see a glimpse of a face for a split second, so it's very hard to see who this was. It was really well shot. Keller is rushed to the hospital where Gloria is saying that he needs blood for a transfusion as Keller spits blood onto his pillow. Gloria says that Keller might have a punctured lung, which explains the spitting of blood, but I don't understand how that's happened unless he was stabbed further up his back before getting stabbed in the kidney. We get a shot of Schellinger back in Unit B joking with others about how Keller now has three or four arseholes, and also see Beecher looking at himself in the mirror to close out Act 3. Well, if you're coming, motherfucker, come on and bring it! Four assholes now. 
I thought this was a really well put together scene, having Keller's attacker in the darkness, and it could feasibly be either Schillinger or Beecher who did the deed. It's been that long since I've watched it that I can't actually remember who it is, but surely it's Beecher acting in revenge for the gym attack. The way that it plays out doesn't fit with how Schillinger has operated in the past. He's much more about the humiliation and also tends to run with a pack and will often stand back in amusement while someone else gets their hands dirty. Beecher, on the other hand, we've seen is much more capable of killing someone by himself and in a secluded area, like how he killed Metzger. But until then, it's going to be fun to play a detective as this story rages on. So Act 4 then gets underway in McManus' office, with Adebisi asking to be transferred out of the kitchen, claiming it brings back too many bad memories, and that not only do Kenny and Napa not trust him, but he doesn't trust them either. He tells McManus that he doesn't want to fall back into his old ways, as McManus floats the idea of working in the dress factory, but Adebisi asks to be assigned to the AIDS ward, because he wants to learn about the disease in the hope that he can maybe one day help the people of Africa, and the AIDS problem that the continent faces. Sub-Saharan Africa, which covers two-thirds of the continent and includes all the countries south of Mali and Niger, accounted for nearly 65% of new infections across the globe, amounting to around 24 million. The good news, however, is that by the end of 2017, approximately 14.6 million people were receiving life-saving treatment, up from 7.7 .7 million at the end of 2012, an increase of 90%, with the overall cost of treatment down from $10,000 per person per year to just $75. Adebisi gets his wish, and we see Gloria explaining to him about treating the men on the ward, who are in the final stages of the disease, and she sends him to give medicine to a patient, Robbie Gerf, played by Patrick Breen. And I know I shouldn't be laughing at anything in this scene. HIV and AIDS is a horrific disease, but unconnected to that, Adebisi looks fucking hilarious with that hairnet on. He gives Robbie his pills and fluffs his pillow, Robbie explaining that he didn't come to us with AIDS, he caught it like the brass ring, which is a reference to the old days of the carnival when a brass ring amongst other metal rings would be tossed to people on the ride, which sounds really dangerous. <laughs> if you caught the brass ring you would often get a free ride as a reward, which was quite the treat back in those days. So Robbie is basically calling his disease a prize, and then asks Adebisi if he's ever fucked somebody up the ass. Obviously, we know that he raped Peter Shibeta, but he did say to Beecher right at the start of the show about how he wouldn't be fucking him that night, and you can bet that there are a ton more that we don't know about. Robbie asks Adebisi if he was ever protected while doing his fucking, to which Adebisi tells him no, which Robbie tuts at, which has got to be the most condescending thing you could do. Adebisi says that Gloria has asked him to take some blood from Robbie, but Robbie says that she's just done that not too long ago. Adebisi makes an excuse, saying that Gloria dropped it and needs some more as he takes some blood from Robbie's arm. Back in M-City, Adebisi is leaning on the railings with a comb in his hair. He's also got these different coloured bands on his arm, which I've no idea what he's going for, but I quite like it as a look. We also see in a second that he's wearing odd socks and slippers to complete this unique look. He sees Napper and Chucky walking through M-City together, but they soon separate, meaning that Napper is now alone. Adebisi heads downstairs with the comb now in his hand, and as he passes Napa, catches him with the tip of one of the needles. Napa pulls back, asking if Adebisi pinched him, but Adebisi denies it and walks away, running the comb through his hair, leaving Napa to wonder what the hell he felt as he looks at his arm. I remember this scene, but I didn't think it came as early as this in the series, 
For some reason, I thought it came around episode 4 or 5. It also shows that Adebisi's change of heart might not be as genuine as it first appeared. Clearly, he has been of sound mind, at least since coming back from Psyche, to formulate this plan to get into the AIDS ward, to get what he needs, and potentially infect Napa. We get another vignette of Augustus telling us that Napoleon was the first man to say, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Although, and as Augustus says here, there's no real way to be certain of that. This also had Ribeiro dressed in a Napoleonic uniform, and there really was no better person to fit that role. It's really good stuff. We transition to solitary confinement where Miguel is continuing to unravel, and we also get another appearance from the MC band we saw earlier. Back in the hospital, Sister Pete tells Gloria that Miguel is showing increased signs of agitation since Garvey ordered the end of his medication, which Gloria doesn't seem surprised at. Sister Pete also mentions that she thinks Miguel is looking much thinner, but Gloria doesn't think that's down to the drug withdrawal, and Pete asks her whether or not Garvey will reconsider having Miguel on the meds. Gloria says no chance, as every decision that Garvey makes is focused on profit margins, and that she has an upcoming interview with him regarding her ongoing employment. A nurse pops her head into the office saying that Ribado is awake, which comes as a surprise not only to Sister Pete, but to all of us as well, as this admission has happened off-screen and Gloria says that Ribido has diabetes. We get a short scene of Gloria explaining to Ribido, who keeps saying that he doesn't have diabetes, that he's going to have to make some changes. And Ribido mentions about how this is his body starting to shut down, and that he's going to miss his monthly package of homemade fudge from his mum. Gloria doesn't mention which type of diabetes Ribido has, whether it's type 1 or type 2, but having either is serious. Type 1 diabetes means that you can't make insulin at all, resulting in glucose building up in the blood rather than in your cells. Whereas with type 2, insulin either doesn't work effectively, or your pancreas doesn't produce enough of it. According to the American Diabetes Association, approximately 1 in 4 adults over the age of 65, which is what Ribido would likely fall into, have some form of diabetes due to not being as functional as younger adults. Gloria then meets up with Dr. Garvey and has her interview. Now let's see, uh, you worked here at Oswald almost two years. You like working here? If you're asking me whether I enjoy myself, I'd have to say no. And why do you want to stay? Because what we do here is important. There's a real need for proper health care. Yeah, proper health care, not excessive. I know you don't support the privatization of the system here at Oz, but by paying Weigert a fixed rate, no matter what care the inmate requires, the state reduces its costs. But because Weigert gets paid the same amount, no matter what treatment we prescribe, wouldn't you limit my ability to, to call in specialists or to use expensive tests? This is no different than HMOs in the public sector. There is a difference. The state has laws to protect consumers against cuts in medical services. There are no such laws for inmates. Weigert has no incentive to provide quality care. Look, we're both doctors. I mean, I took the same oath you did. Then why cut Miguel Alvarez's antidepressants? Because, as I told you, I consider this unnecessary care. And if you hadn't spent too much money on unnecessary care, the state wouldn't have had to bring us in. Alvarez is suicidal. Well, maybe it's all for the best. What? But God knows he's not doing anyone any good alive. Fuck you. This interview is over. I'm hereby giving you two weeks' notice. 
Knock yourself out, asshole. So Gloria has had enough of the bureaucracy and tells Guavi to go fuck himself. Kind of feel for Gloria a little bit here. She's clearly trying to do right by the patients, but that's hard to do when you've got someone like Garvey putting stumbling blocks in the way. And as a result of her outburst, Garvey gives her a two weeks notice. We go to Ray's office where he's making what I believe you American folks call a PB&J sandwich. Okay, so peanut butter, good. But that's not jelly, that's jam. So many times when I was younger did I hear the word jelly get used in US shows and wonder what the hell you were playing at. There's a knock at the door and Sister Pete walks in, and Ray does his best to hide the sandwich, but he looks like a kid who's been caught with a porn mag. She asks him what's going on as Ray tries to play it off as nothing, but she points out that he's wearing his vestments, which he never does, which isn't strictly true, we've seen him in those a bunch of times. He says that he can't talk about it and that he's on his way to solitary, as Pete reels off the names of the four Catholics currently housed there. Once she's figured out that it's Miguel that Ray's making food for, she tries to then figure out why, which she quickly realises is because he's not being fed, paying off her line about Miguel appearing thin from before. Although I did like her guessing that Ray was doing it just to cheer Miguel up. Ray says that she should have been a cop, although considering she couldn't piece together the sycamore and broom riddle without someone's help, that might be overreaching a bit. She asks if Miguel was the one that told him, and that he could be lying because prisoners in solitary tend to become delusional or paranoid. But Ray says that he's caught between a rock and a hard place, and that he needs to give Miguel the benefit of the doubt. So he heads off to solitary, and his plan very nearly comes a cropper straight away when he drops the sandwich on the floor, but luckily Claire doesn't see it because she's opening Miguel's cell. Also, five second rule used to full effect there, well done Ray. Miguel is sat in the corner having trashed his cell, and he also has blood on his knuckles. Ray asks for them to be left alone, and Claire closes the cell door. With that, he tries to get Miguel to take the sandwich, but Miguel says that he isn't hungry. Ray tells him that's impossible because he hasn't eaten for two days and persists in trying to get Miguel to eat, but Miguel lashes out and holds Ray down on the bed. Claire rushes in and forces Miguel into the corner as Ray is pulled out of the room, and he's pleading with her not to hurt Miguel. However, Claire and another CEO lock Ray out of the cell and proceed to put a beating on Miguel, and all Ray can do is watch it unfold. In the library, we join a staff meeting in progress. We don't seem to have had one of these in a while, or at least it feels that way. Gloria is saying that Keller is likely to live, and Leo says that he'll launch an inquiry into the attack, as McManus makes it known that he thinks that Schillinger is the prime suspect. Pete interrupts and says that they need to deal with the violence issue as a whole, not just between the inmates, but between inmates and the staff, and begins to explain about a programme she has in mind, in which victims of violence, be that prisoner or staff, get to interact with their offender. As she's laying this out, Ray joins the meeting, looking a little shaken up from what he's witnessed over in solitary. Pete continues to explain her proposal, and Ray says that he thinks it's a great idea, as we also see Miguel having a hallucination of a naked woman, only to have that taken away by Claire showing up. In Leo's office, Ray says that he wants Sister Pete's program to start with a meeting between Miguel and Officer Rivera, and asks for Miguel to be released from solitary, assuming that Rivera is willing to meet. Leo explains that he's heard about what happened in Solitary, and that that should be enough to convince Ray that Miguel is where he belongs, and that it would also cause issues among the other COs. Ray tells Leo that he can overrule them, but Leo says that he agrees with them, and that Miguel should rot. Ray explains that the next acts of violence Miguel commits could be to himself, and that it could result in his suicide, to which Leo says, so be it. So clearly we're seeing the issues between Leo and Miguel come to the surface once again, 
and Ray even mentions that and says that he'd thought that Leo had put those feelings aside. Leo says that he thought he had two, but Miguel knowing who his daughter's rapist is and concealing that information is still eating away at Leo, and he says that maybe he and Ray were both wrong. As Leo puts his hand to his face, this was the first time that I noticed that he wears a talk bangle on his right wrist. I used to have one of those, not sure if I've still got it though. Might have to go for a rummage later on. Augustus narrates about Napoleon dying in exile as we watch Miguel tear at his bedsheets and fashion that into a noose. He ties it to the top of the barred cell door and the sheet then takes his body weight. He's using this method because, as you can see, he's had the shoelaces taken out of his Converse All-Stars, a measure to prevent exactly this from occurring. The episode closes with Augustus placing Miguel's head in a guillotine, and as the blade drops, we cut to black. Leo, I know that you and Miguel had some rough moments after your daughter was raped. He knows who did it, and he won't tell. I thought you'd put those feelings aside. So did I, Father. I guess we were both wrong. When Napoleon died in exile, the doctors cut off his dick. They put his dick in an ornate box and gave it to his priest. Don't ask me why. Over the years, Napoleon's dick was sold and sold again to the highest bidder. To this day, at least three people claim to own Napoleon's dick. But you see, it's not important who owns the real dick. The big question is, well, who the fuck do those other two dicks belong to? So there you have it, Series 3, Episode 2, Napoleon's Bernie Parts. Really enjoyed this episode once again. Series 3 is off to a really good start. And also the first time in a long time that we've had a proper cliffhanger ending. I don't think we've had one like that since Saeed had his heart attack way back in Episode 6. Some stories getting more advancement than others, but I feel like everything that happened in this one happened for a reason, without anything really coming off as filler. McManus has brushed off Metzger's death by bringing in a trusted friend to oversee M-City, Augustus once again shows why he's one of the more human characters on the show, and we got some good comedic moments from Schillinger. On the flip side of that, we've got the continued dissension in the Muslim group, Tim McManus, love machine, has got himself into a spot of bother with Claire, Adebisi is showing some shades of grey, while the two big moments from the episode introduced a whodunit into the Beecher Schillinger Keller arc, and closed on, like I said, the cliffhanger of Miguel's would-be suicide in solitary. As we have to wait to learn Miguel's fate, as it stands, everybody made it out of the episode alive. However, we do have some new members of the Oz One and Done Club. First is Michael Mora, aka Rocket's Red Glare, guest starring as the M-City Barber. Red Glare had only a handful of acting appearances post-Oz, appearing in the movie The Diary of the Hurdy-Gurdy Man in 1999, as well as 2000's Animal Factory, starring alongside Willem Dafoe, Edward Furlong, Danny Trejo, Mickey Rourke, and others. Red Glare passed away on May 8th, 2001, from a combination of liver and kidney failure, as well as cirrhosis and complications of hepatitis C. Obituaries of Red Glare's death labelled him as both a gifted raconteur, a New York alternative celebrity, and the Chicago Reader, and Seattle's The Stranger, respectively. 
Red Blair's life was portrayed in a self-titled documentary directed by Luis Fernandez de la Reguera in 2003, and he also appeared in archive footage in the documentary Chelsea on the Rocks in 2008, while his final acting role came in previously filmed footage used in 2012's The Killing Games. Peter Apel, who appeared briefly as Shirley's lawyer, continues to act in minor roles with credits on shows such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Law and & Order and its spin-off Law & Order Special Victims Unit, The Killing Point, Luck, Boardwalk Empire and Blue Bloods, as well as in films with credits for Spider-Man, The Happening and his most recent credit coming in 2019's Bad Education. He's also lent his vocal talents to a number of video games, including various incarnations of Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto series, as well as their video game adaptation of the 1979 cult classic, The Warriors. This is also the final time that we see Heinrich Schillinger on the show, played by Dick Pacelli. This was Dick's final acting appearance, although he did continue to perform as the drummer with the Comets, and in 2007, the band opened the Bill Haley Museum in Munich, Germany. Dick Pacelli passed away at age 95 on July 12, 2019, in Ocean City, New Jersey. Guest director Matt Dillon returned to acting in the early noughties with One Night at the Cools, and in 2002 appeared in Juice's Wild and City of Ghosts, the latter of which he also wrote and directed. In 2004 he was part of the ensemble cast of the movie Crash, not to be confused with the David Cronenberg directed movie of the same name, for which he was nominated for an Oscar, as well as a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, and a Screen Actors Guild Award among others. He also appeared in comedies such as Herbie Fully Loaded for Walt Disney Pictures, 2006's You, Me and Dupree starring alongside Owen Wilson and Kate Hudson, Old Dogs in 2009 with John Travolta and Robin Williams, and in 2013 appeared in The Art of the Steel. 2015 saw Dylan return to TV to play Ethan Burke in the first series of Fox's Wayward Pines, based on Blake Crouch's series of science fiction novels and for which he received a Saturn Award nomination. His latest credits include the short film Nimic, as well as 2018's The House That Jack Built, 2019's Proxima, and at the time of recording, his latest film Fonzo is in post-production, as is his documentary El Gran Fell Love, which he is listed as directing. My episode MVP, one of the easier ones to pick this time, as I don't think you can really look beyond Augustus Hill in this episode. For some reason, Malcolm Coyle has decided that he's got to prove himself to be some tough motherfucker. And while Augustus knows that he's most likely full of shit, which he does call him on, he also knows that there is a niggling possibility that what Malcolm's saying could be true. At great risk to himself, he goes to tell Leo what Malcolm has told him, which even Leo admits is ballsy, but is ultimately the right thing to do once again showing Augustus to be one of the few to have any shred of humanity amongst the inmates of MC. So for those reasons, Augustus Hill is my episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcast from, where you will find the first two series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. You can also now listen to the show over at podchaser.com, but wherever you listen, be sure to subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, 
leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the show, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, she's got them and she knows how to use them as we take a look at Series 3, Episode 3, Legs, where we find out the fate of Miguel Alvarez, Ribido gets a visitor, Napa finds out what effect a pinch from Adebisi can have, and the first round of the boxing tournament gets underway. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Oh,